the James Suckling podcast. Wine ratings, reports, interviews and more. Hey James, how are you? Hey, good morning. How are you? I'm fantastic. Where are you? Uh, St. Helena. Oh, cool. Yeah, we have uh, offices throughout the valley. This one is um, our newest office, and it's uh, it's in the same building as ETS. Um, oh, sure, yeah. And then you had a <clears throat> an excellent uh, harvest. What I hear from um, a lot of people. Yeah, it, it was the, the quality was really, really exactly what we like to see um, for the style of wines that we make. Uh, we were able to harvest with with really. Um, full flavor great phenolics a great phenolic maturity but great acid and in 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 the bricks were not too high um so for us it's like a dream we the yields were in some cases especially up in the mountains uh excruciatingly low uh, i mean our mm-hmm. grade, we averaged uh one ton an acre for that that ranch that's you know it's a very wow. ranch. uh down on the valley floor and some of the fertile benchlands um we were down maybe about 20, 25% um, due to the, the, the droughts in the mountains. We got hit the hardest. Um, I, I hear that also uh, the berries were very small with thick skin. So, yeah, I, a ten. lot of that has to do with, uh, it's a number of things. Um, one, if, if, you were, if you were doing drought irrigation, you're not watering too early in the season, your berries were, were small and concentrated but for those who are a little more ambitious with irrigation you may have not had that um but typically most people try to wait closer to raisin to 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 use much water um as do we so you did have those small concentrated berries but again if you can balance that with proper acid and not too much alcohol it becomes a really beautiful dense flavorful classical wine you have to be careful if you go up too much then you have a wine that may be a bit too saturated um, and that, that's the, the delicate dance in, in when you have such small, small yields and small berries, it's very easy for the bricks to go out of, out of check really fast. So you have to be sampling daily. And I know that seems extreme, but you really have to, to know where things are going. So it doesn't go out of, out of whack. Um, because your, your bricks can, especially on poor soils in the mountains, they can shoot up within 48 hours with a heat wave. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. When you have a bigger crop, it's the, br- the bricks go up much slower. Sure, it makes sense. Yeah, because yeah. you have less um, you have less liquid in the grape, so um, right. it's going to pop, you know, pretty quickly. So, um, and that's so that's really good news, particularly after the um, 2020, and um, obviously you had a big problem there with um, Burgess. But uh, just thinking about in general, it's pretty amazing what you've done. Uh, you know the the Lawrence family and the whole thing, and it's it. And I, you know, I've read a few things, and I was, and they haven't really, not many stories have mentioned like why they did it. Like, um, you know, I assume they're really into wine because, uh, you know, the wine business can be a tough business. But yeah, what's the story? Like, what's what? You know, why did they decide after, after being involved in um, all sorts of other agricultural products? Like what was the, you know, one day they just set out and, and in, in a quick time, they've really put together some um, amazing classical um, 
let's say, historical names and then have done some other things. What's the story with the so Lawrences? I, I, met, uh, I met Galen and his family back in, I believe it was 2017, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we really hit it off. Um, and our connection was really as, you know, a sommelier and, and wine collector. And yeah, making some of the great wines of the world. Um, and, and that's how our relationship sort of grew was from that for just sort of a mutual love for really, really great classical wines. You know, the first night we met, I mean, we had, I still remember the wines we had, uh, 82 Latour, uh, 90 Petrus, um, 97 Mascarello, uh, I think it was 2010, um, DRC Grand Ash. I mean, just really great classical wines and, um, and we got along on a personal level very well. And maybe roughly six months in, we started talking. He says, you know, um, what, what, what's the business of, 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 of wine? You know, what, what is it? We started talking. And I said, well, there's a lot of ways you can enter the business. There's, um, there's many. Um, and his daughter lived here in the Napa Valley. She just graduated from CIA and decided to stay here. So he was coming here more often. Um, and he really liked the more classical structured wines of Napa. Mm. And, you know, you know, we talked and he says, what are the, are there investment opportunities? He says, absolutely. Uh, but as we discussed, I said, they have to be long-term investments. It doesn't really pan out for short term investment unless you really want to, you know, that's a whole different business model, but you know, he's not that kind of guy. So when Heights, there became whispers of Heights going on the market, um, he gave me a call and asked me what I thought. And I actually flew down to, to Wilson, Arkansas, where he has a home. And we spent a few days down there um, drinking more great wine and um, talking about what, what, we, what I loved about Heights. And he said, well, you know what? I, I feel very confident. I believe you because I love the wines. He goes, you know, I'm going to do this. And he called me a few days, a few years later, probably a few months later and said, hey, look, I'm going to close on this thing. I'm going to buy it. Thank you for your advice. I'd love you to come out and we'll celebrate this thing in Napa. So I said, sure, I'm not going to turn you down there. So um, I flew in, I was living in Aspen at the time and I flew in from Aspen to Napa and we just spent a few days, you know, drinking great wines. And that was my first time being to Heights and it just felt really exceptional being there. You, you, you feel um, the impact of, of, you know, hundred plus harvests from that estate. Yeah. Uh, Taplin was developed in the 1880s by the Rossi family. They still have one of the original stone wineries and, and it was built in 1898. Yeah. And you can just feel that history there. And it's, it's really beautiful. Not being like this big flashy winery. Uh, so totally. And yeah, I agree. Uh, at the end of it, we're flying back. And he says, Carlton, he says, uh, so what do I have to do to get you to come out and run this thing? And I said, I, said, yeah, I don't, I don't, That's want awesome. yeah. I what said, a yeah. story. Yeah. I said, I don't run wineries, but thank you. And he says, why not? I says, well, and I actually made him a whole list of things that I didn't know how to do, um, which I think really surprised and caught him off guard. But I was, I, I respect him a lot. I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to be dishonest, very honest with him. Yeah. And he went through and he says, well, you're a very smart guy. You're a quick learner. I feel all those things you can learn very quickly. So if you want the job, I'd love you to, to, to come and join. And I mulled around a little bit and we went back and forth for couple months but finally i said you know what i think this is a really uh, could be a really beautiful new chapter in my life and um, a, um an exciting new challenge uh, i've been at the little Nell for almost nine years as the wine yeah. director at that time and um so i came on board and when i came on board 
we really quickly, even though I'd only been at Heights for maybe four months at that point, started to talk about if there were other investment potential or if there are any other states that we felt um, that could use the same attention, uh, classical estates that, you know, had sort of fallen out of favor and just sort of decided not to, you know, not be forward facing um, and, and whose wines that we really liked. So we continue to invest with that as a priority. Yeah. Uh, Such and, as, and then Stony Hill, Stony Hill and, Burgess. Yeah, and Burgess. Yeah. But also so, some vineyards, James, mm-hmm. you know, I became a student of, of history of Napa Valley and, mm-hmm. I mean, you know this, there are a lot of wines in the 50s, 60s, 70s, even some of the 80s that were never a single vineyard designated. And it just yeah, wasn't part of the culture for a long time. So you sort of have to do some research, ask some old timers and find out where were those wines sourced. And, you know, we found out, I love the old wines from Spring Mountain Estate. Mm-hmm, and I found too. out from John Williams that those, uh, those wines he actually made in the 80s, they came from the Wildwood Ranch in Rutherford. And... Lo and behold, that came up for sale, so we bought that. And now we have that whole original Wildwood estate, 110 acres. We own the entire ranch now. That is awesome. And so I guess the question is define classical um, Napa Valley. I mean, this is sort of a rhetorical question, by the way. But (laughs) just because I'm a huge fan myself. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like, so I'm I'm a, a lover of great artwork. And, and when you look at art, you can define a movement by an era and the artist, you know, sort of thing. Uh, when you talk about the Cubist movement, this very particular period where that style was in favor. And what I look at is really looking at the sort of late 60s to mid 80s. Mm-hmm. It was a very particular era in Napa where wines were that have a, a very particular structure to them wines that were typically ranging somewhere between 12 to high 13s in alcohol, really never going above that. Um, usually not much above 13.5. Uh, a focus on acid and, and, and a lighter extraction, um, often using larger um, uh, wood instead of all barrique and definitely not mm-hmm. all barrique. Um, and, and really focus on that. With farming, really the focus and the, the emphasis was on uh, a bit more shading. Um, so the the classical Napa sprawl, the, the double Geneva curtain and the Elkhorn were preferred over vertical shoot positioning, which allows you to get dappled sunlight without too much sunlight. Um, I mean, it, it's just sort of, it's all very intentional the way it was farmed. Wider rows, in the, you know, spacing. Yeah, areas. totally. But, and, yeah, low, um, low, dense, uh, low density. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, I actually do like modern Napa wines as well. There's a number mm-hmm. of producers that I really uh, have collected for a number of years and really enjoy. But we just had a special place in our heart for that style of wine. Um, and we particularly like them with with a uh, number of years of age as well. So, um, you know, that's what I would say is sort of more of a, the classical style, um, you know, in Napa that we were really trying to, you know, find young winemakers who were really nostalgic about it and wanted to go down that rabbit hole um, and go on that journey with them. It's, it's a, well, I'm sure as you know, what I found interesting was the number of young winemakers. Well, anyways, I'm pretty old now. So just about everyone's young, but um, in any case, let's say guys in their thirties and I spent some time like um, hanging with them, like at some of the, um, at dinners with like, you yeah. know, there's like 10 or 20 of them and they're always drinking old Napa wines. 
Yeah. And I was like, dude, it's like, what's the deal here? And always drinking Italian wines and, <laughs> and champagne. And I said, well, why <clears throat> aren't you making wines like that? And luckily in the last <clears throat> five or six years, you've really seen people, you know, changing it. Like now that Screaming Eagle picks in late August yeah. or even Harlan or mm-hmm. so you see that trend uh, of, you know, top estates and top producers doing exactly what, uh, you know, what you say and what and exactly what you want to do. That's great to want to do that. But with global warming and these issues with drought, snow, water, it must be uh, really hard to to dial it in like that. Well, you know, I, think, to- I think you ultimately you have to you have to always be looking to adjust your approach for for the season, your climate, and ultimately we we started by looking at what they were doing. You have to start with the raw mm-hmm. material. Let's start there. It all starts in the vineyard with ensuring you can get. Because look, anyone can pick grapes early, but can you can you pick grapes that have enough phenolic ripeness and flavor maturity um, to make great wine? Right is really the goal. Yeah, and understanding how to balance your vineyard so that you don't have these extremely green, pyrazine-driven wines that have crazy hard tannins, and you know you really want, and, and that's a difficult thing to do. That you have to use science. You can't just sort of be a gunslinger. It doesn't work. Yeah. And so we, we started with trying to look at what, you know, what farming techniques were used back in those days. Luckily, you know, we work with uh, Mark Neal, who his family has been farming here since the early 60s. Uh, he's developed a lot of his family, developed a lot of the vineyards that we, we see around the valley uh, at this point. And they've been working with the Heights family since then, pretty much since they started. So we really understand that. But we also understand that some of those techniques don't work um, now mm-hmm. because the climate has changed. So uh, looking at everything from, um vine trading methods um you know there's a lot of the valley where vsp just probably shouldn't be planted anymore um you know you really need to be looking at how to shade your fruit a bit more and cool down the fruiting zone it has a massive impact on the in structure of the wines um also looking at what yields you should be having i think there was this really big push to to have as low as yields as possible where it, it doesn't really make sense scientifically on value floor with more fertile soils. Um, you know, I love listening to the, the story of Tim Mandavi talking about 10 ton Tony from the Tokelon vineyard that would get 10 tons. And that's because there are certain parts of that vineyard that are very fertile. So why would you try to have two, three tons to the acre? Ultimately what happens is you've got so much vigor and, 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 and moisture in the soil, your canopy stay in a vegetative state. So you're always going to have pyrazines and you end up with these wines that are, you know, 16% alcohol, but with pyrazines. And that is a sign of a, a very out of balance vineyard. So really understanding how to farm to, to not have pyrazines at lower bricks and not having to hang the fruit indefinitely. Um, but also understanding even the clones that you need to have there, the vine spacing, how much fruit that you can actually ripen properly and not try to push it. Cause obviously we know in the nineties, there's this big push. How much could I get? There was a lot of grape growers. So how much, yeah. how much could I get? You know, because it was, you know, they weren't making wine. Now there's a lot more people who are landowners who are now making wine. So Good the point. interest is more making quality wine instead of just, it's sort of what happened in Chianti, right? Where it was just, yeah. you know, I'll, I'll pay on tonnage, not quality. Now you're making wine, your interest is it's far more driven towards towards quality. Um, and, and, you know, just also understanding how to work with fruit like that. One of the reasons why we hired a lot of the winemakers that we hired is, 
they know how to make great wines at lower bricks. You can't vinify the wines the same way. It doesn't work. Totally. Um, it's just like cooking. If I give you two tomatoes at different levels of ripeness, if I tell you I want really good tomato sauce, you have to cook them differently. And in the cellar, you can't take fruit at, you know, we're harvesting Cabernet, you know, at 22 bricks, 23 bricks. Wow. You're not 21 bricks in some cases. You're not vinifying the that's wine. That's really like, that's like 1980s. Like yeah. when I left the US in 85 for Europe to live there. Yeah. And people, and, pe that, and I remember with, you know, refractometers and it was all like 21, 21.5. And then I came back to like, 15 years later, it's like 27. Like, what yeah. happened? Like, what, where have I been? It was like, what, I've been on another planet or something. No, and I think, you know, you have to remember, it's like, you can't make those wines the same way. It just doesn't work. Yeah. And, you know, I've had some really in-depth conversations with our winemakers who are used to working with cool Colorado's. I mean, I have winemakers who never made Cabernet before, only made Pinot. And watching That's them cool. with Cabernet is just mind-blowing they are looking for something different in the wine. They know they're going to get structure. It's Cabernet, but they're looking for aromatic complexity. They're looking for freshness, knowing that you're going to have the structure from Cabernet, no matter what. Also, um, you know, elevage and the way they age the yeah. wines is very different. And it's just been a really beautiful journey and trying to say, hey, look, we like the results, but we know that we have to go a different way because our climate and weather is very different. So what do we, what do we need to tweak naturally? To get there, I should also note that you know all of our winemakers are very um, focused on biodynamic and regenerative farming, um, awesome. which is you know another big part of I think being able to deal with things like drought conditions is having yeah. a balanced vineyard that can withstand those conditions. It's very very important for us. So we'll be fully biodynamic within a year, uh, Dimeter certified. Um, we have oh fantastic, oh, good. Yeah, we have uh, six hundred and fifty planted acres in the Napa Valley wow. right now. That means that that uh, actually the Heights had started this already because it takes it was it, six or seven years to get to, to meter, you know, to get to meter certified, right? Heights was quietly one of the biggest advocates for organic farming. And they've been yeah. organic certified since 1984, the year I was born. So they've been doing wow. this for a long time. Um, and I, I didn't know that. I think they were doing it in a day where... Um, it was sort of still looked upon as like witchcraft, you know, organic farming. And so they didn't tell anyone about it. They refused to put it on the label. They didn't put any marketing materials. So we took that and ran with it and said, how do we continue that legacy of being at the forefront of that movement? Although we were definitely very far from being the first people to go biodynamic, we'll be one, right. probably the largest for sure in, in, in the U.S. So. Congratulations. Yeah. That's incredible. What do you think about the market? Is the, again, this is sort of rhetorical, but, um, is the market ready? Are are there? Uh, is it new consumers, or do you see old not uh, older Napa Cabernet lovers okay with drinking wines with lower alcohol, less fruit driven, more terroir driven? What's your thought on on that on the market? Obviously, you believe there's a market, or you wouldn't be doing this because you sure. and 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 the Lawrences can only drink so much wine on your own. <laughs> we try, but no. You know the way I look at it, and, and I, I come from the sommelier side of, 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 of interacting with guests. And I feel very strongly there's more than enough guests uh, and wine consumers in the market that would love to sell a wine. Now, remember, we're talking about Napa here. This is not uh, Volnay. 
you know, you can only make the light of a wine. You're making Cabernet Sauvignon in, in the Napa Valley, right? So we're not talking about 11% alcohol red wines here. Yeah. We're just talking about wines that have a little bit more of an emphasis on freshness and vibrance and ageability and structure than, than power. Power is very easy to attain with Cabernet Sauvignon in the Napa Valley. Uh, it's about can you restrain it and keep it balanced is really the chore. Um, but also, you know, wine consumers are, are open to that balance and elegance from every other region in the world, then they have to allow us to do it as well and celebrate it here. Um, and I think there's enough people outside of the world, I mean, all over the world, even outside of the US that would really embrace that style of wine. We know there's a big market in the UK who loves that style of wine. Uh, in yeah. Japan, they absolutely adore that style of wine. I mean, there's enough markets who really love it. And we also have to remember the Napa Valley is not a massive growing region. It's 45,000 acres. And the, the, the lion's share that is consumed uh, domestically so we also need to be looking at is how do we spread our wings internationally a little bit more. And I think they will embrace the wines even, even more so being uh, a little more elegant, a little more fresh. Yeah, I have to agree. As you know, I've lived in Asia like 10 years and, um, and I can say that, yeah, drinkability is really important. I mean, the fact is people like to drink wine here. They're not <laughs> into one glass wines. Yeah, I'm <laughs> and, not either. Yeah. And, and I so like, I think that I like I'm an eater, huh? First, right? I was a cook yeah. for a number of years. I love to eat great food, and I think if I'm going to have a bottle of wine, which I want more than a glass for sure, is I want wine that refreshes the palate and doesn't weigh it down and doesn't challenge my food, uh, and complements it well, but also can develop over a number of hours and still remain fresh. Um, and doesn't lean towards the sort of syrupy, unctuous side. Um, yeah. And I'm also, I wouldn't say I'm a lightweight, but I think sometimes when wines get too heavy, especially with alcohol, <laughs> it's like, it, it shortens my night a bit. You know what I mean? It's, sure. it's, it's a little more difficult. And it's hell in the morning too. Oh my God. <laughs> that's that's like, gold, James, I can't do it anymore. Yeah, totally. I'm with you. It's really exciting what you're doing. Congratulations. That's, I like the whole serendipity of the whole thing. I can just see the dots. They were all there and somehow you sort of connected them all. Well, and that's what it is, is there is no, you know, I think you look at what we've accomplished in, in the last two and a half years, and you would think that there was this big boardroom with a bunch of corporate guys with this plan. And yeah. really, it was really about staying pure in our beliefs and what we wanted to achieve. And probably the most important part is finding the right state directors and winemakers who also wanted that, but didn't have anyone that would invest in allowing them to do that on a grand stage. And we brought winemakers from all over to, to really take part in it. You know, we brought in Jamie Motley to take over at Stony Hill. And she's just a really brilliant winemaker. We're really uh, fortunate to retain Brittany Sher, a really talented young winemaker. Matt Taylor, who was at Joseph Swan, Domaine Dujac, uh, and then worked with the, uh, at the Isley Vineyard for a number of years. He took over. Uh, okay, yeah. Nico Cuevo, uh, formerly of Costa Brown, to come in and make the wines at Haynes. So we've got oh, all yeah, they're great winemakers, and they all um, have. What? Different... Who, what? Which? Where's Nico working then? He's making the wines. He's doing two projects for us. Actually, he's making uh -huh. the wine down at the Haynes Vineyard, and another experimental project, a collaboration with um, um, a very well-known Burgundian producer, which we'll announce soon on a project. Okay. In... Um, so, um, wow, cool. Yeah. We're, so, we're so having... Are those, are, is, that, is Nico doing Cab and Pinot or do, what is he doing? Yeah, he's doing both because at the Haynes Vineyard, we have um, 
Chardonnay and, and, and Pinot Noir yeah. from 1967. There's Syrah there. Uh, also Cabernet, uh, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, Merlot, and Mouved. And then in, in Rutherford, it's 100% Cabernet-based wines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, I'd, I'd like, you know, watch this space, as they used to say. Yeah. Lots to, lots to, to see going on. It just feels so good. You go around and you taste these wines and they're just so delicious. You know, it's just really nice. It's very gratifying. You know, I, I, um, it's my job again to put the pieces together, but ultimately, you know, the credit is always due to, to our winemakers. I think that, you know, I come from a restaurant background where I strongly believe that the chef is the soul of the house. I believe that with our winemakers, they, you know, they're the ones who are charged with, um, crafting what we present to our guests it's really you know like you said two and a half years just this lightning pace of and now what is it going to feel like when you like you you can't it's going to take time to really make great you know make really great wines and, and this is agriculture so like how do you how do you feel about that yeah i mean look we, we what we do is we isolated things that we can speed up and things that we can't um uh you can't speed up Vineyard can't speed, yeah. which wines age, everything else we, is under our control. Um, so it does take time, but it, we're, we're in it for the very long haul. And it's part of our journey, uh, Galen and I together. And it's been very gratifying, but we, we learn an enormous amount every day. Um, we're fortunate to have vineyards in all stretches of the valley. So we're able to just learn an enormous amount because of everything that we have going on in so many different winemakers. But even, you know, we, we came on in, in 18 and really our first harvest was 19. Um, and we've learned so much from that. Um, 2020, we harvested about 20% roughly before the fires and then we left the rest mm-hmm. on. So that was a different kind of lesson. Um, <laughs> but we also did make a very small quantity of really, really exceptional wine. That was the first year that we really had our heads completely wrapped around how to farm for lower bricks in this climate. And knowing which blocks we could do it and which blocks we couldn't. Interesting. And in 2021, this year, although again the yields were low, it was a really a complete picture of um, of of coming full circle and going around. You know, again now we have estates all over tasting with everyone. You know, it was sort of like the, the head nod, like all right, we're in the right direction. We know what we're doing here, and it's just staying consistent, continuing to learn, um, and moving forward appropriately. I think one of the issues that a lot of investment groups have when they get so big is they try to have this big universal approach and it, it doesn't work. Um, you know, we take every vineyard by itself is almost if we only had that one vineyard and we farm it that way and we, we, we harvest it that way. We make it that way, even though we have so much going on, if you don't give it that detail, then uh, ultimately a, a number of the, the vineyards that just fall by the wayside as a sacrifice. We really don't want to do that. And, and you're really going to focus on single vineyards then for your top wines, right? Uh, yeah, in, in some cases. I mean, really, it's, it's, okay. you know, I think that single vineyard is very important. It's where the Napa Valley really needs to go for people to really understand the, 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 the unique terroirs here. Um, um, but we also sort of feel that there should be something unique about it and not every vineyard deserves that yeah like, it, it, it's fine for it to have a name but does it deserve its own bottling you know it's that's totally. up to each state i don't we don't necessarily feel that way or heights would have probably 30 single vineyards and we don't really want to do that <laughs> that's like a disaster in the cellar so yeah 
Aside from the fact selling it all would be confusing. <laughs>